Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Joel Salatin. Joel, thank you so much for coming and speaking to me today. Oh, thank you, Daniel. I'm delighted and honored to be with you. It's great. I don't really think you need much of an introduction, Joel, because you're probably the most well-known and most active man in sustainable and regenerative agriculture and um, far- biodynamic farming. And yeah, you've got your farm Polyface Farms and you're always doing something. I think I've watched probably a dozen documentaries or films or things with you in it. So you've been a very, very active uh, person over the years and a bit of an inspiration to me. So did you want to speak a little bit just about what you're doing out on your, on your farm there and what you're up to at the moment? Well, sure. Uh, yes. We're, our farm is here in Virginia, which is kind of on the you know, eastern, eastern uh, seaboard of the U.S. Uh, we're what? We're four hours, uh, four hours from the ocean, um, from the Atlantic. And um, so, so we're in, you know, we're in a little bit of a, a mountainous, it's a, it's a valley, uh, mountains on both sides. So our farm for, you know, for Australians, this is really important to realize our farm has um, about 350 meters of elevation difference uh, from the lowest part to the highest part. Wow. That's like, that's like, that's like the, the entire elevation difference in the whole continent of Australia, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's about 375. So yeah, right, right. I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not that far off the, the, the point. I mean, and of course I love Australia. I've been there, you know, I think I've been there 16 times. Wow. So, uh, and, and I'm, I'm hoping that someday I can go back. I just, this COVID thing is anyway, that's another story for another day. But uh, anyway, because of that elevation on the, on the farm, uh, we're able to do some really interesting permaculture type things with water to, you know, to gravity flow and, and make high ponds. And um, so, you know, probably the most un, unknown, uh, unappreciated thing that we have here is uh, roughly 16 kilometers of, um, of gravity fed water pipe that delivers pressure water um, all, over the, all over the farm, a uh, high pressure actually, uh, all over the farm with, without any pumps, or switches or, or electricity or anything. It just gravity flows from these, uh, these high permaculture style ponds. So what we do is we're, we're in pastured livestock. So we have beef, pork, chicken, turkey, eggs, uh, rabbit, duck, lamb, and, uh, and we direct market everything to, um, you know, a, a, under a, a farm brand, uh, we direct market it uh, directly to consumers. Amazing. Yeah, you're doing some really, really good work. And yeah, a bit of an inspiration to myself and my fiance, who you just quickly met. Um, and, you know, there's a few things that I'd love to speak to you about today. And when I, th- I often say this, because I'm a, I'm a lecturer at a university, I often say this to some of my students, is that, um, you know, if you eat a sick, disease, stressed out piece of meat, you're probably going to become a sick, disease, stressed out piece of meat. And I got that quote from you. <laughs> so do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, why are humans consuming these sick, disease, stressed out pieces of meat? And <laughs> what can we actually do similar to, similar to what you're doing so that we're not consuming that type of meat? Right. 
Right. Well, I think I think if we go to the kind of the foundation of it, what we find is that uh, our the, the Western Western cultures um, are primarily view life as primarily mechanical, and uh, and Eastern cultures view life primarily as um, as biological. And there's a tension. Uh, there's obviously there's mechanics in life. You know, you lever your you know leverage of your elbow, and I mean there, there's obviously um, you know mechanical things. But but at its core, uh, we see life as more fundamentally uh, biological than mechanical. I.e., you know, cells, um, uh, you know, microbes think. You know, they 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 they. Um, they make decisions, you know, uh, do I want that sugar or do I want to carry some molybdenum over here? Maybe I've got some cobalt, you know, and you, you have this, all this uh, uh, spontaneous trading and commerce going on in the soil, in the plant, I mean, in our own microbiome. And so we, we dare to ask, uh, does it matter if we have happy pigs? Uh, I mean, so, so our first our first order of business is to create a habitat that allows each plant and animal to fully express its physiological distinctiveness, i.e. the tomatoness of the tomato, the carrotness of the carrot. And so what, what, what happens is when we as, a, as, as humans, when we take, when we take our dominant place um, in this hierarchy and view life as fundamentally mechanical, we only ask things like, you know, how can we grow it faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper? We, we view life as an inanimate protoplasmic blob. A and what happens then is that we don't actually try to uh, satisfy uh, all of the nutritional, social, emotional. We don't try to satisfy all those aspects of the animal. And so uh, the animals come in to harvest uh, stressed um nutrient uh, deficient uh you know any number of any number of uh, uh you know pharmaceuticals to keep them alive and so then the next thing you know is you're you're trying to um you're trying to cheat cheat um natural templates uh for example you know animals are supposed to move well you know we live in a time in western cultures where you know um we don't care if animals move or not we we lock them up in big factory farms we don't care if they move or not, and um, and there's there's no real moral or ethical uh, boundary on the cleverness of human manipulation, and and what happens is when you have no ethical or moral boundary to human manipulation, you know, uh, a greed takes over. Um, you know, you start cheating, cheating nature, and uh, one of the one of the things that we know, Daniel, is that uh, nature bats last. You know, you don't cheat nature forever. Eventually, nature is going to come back, and um, and so that's what we're seeing now in the human population, as we as we ingest um, as we ingest food that we have violated in life, it then comes back. And, and so so you know, um, you're not as old as I am, but you know, when I when I was you know when I was in school, for example. Um, Nobody asked about food allergies. The, the phrase didn't exist. Who ever heard of food allergies? Um, nobody heard of autism. Nobody heard of type two diabetes. I mean, it just it just didn't didn't exist. Um, and, and certainly nobody heard of uh, MRSA, C diff, 
um, uh, uh, um, Listeria, Campylobacter, E. coli, uh, Salmonella, you know, all of those things. And, and so what happens is when you do violence, when you do violence to the food, the food ends up doing violence to us. I mean, I, I think that's that that's about as 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 uh, primal as I can be on it, uh, without getting scientific, and and intuitively, intuitively that makes sense. You know, when we when we bully when we bully life, life life's going to bully us, mm. and it's not going to be pretty. And so that's kind of that's kind of where we are right now in our food system, uh, in that we have not respected the pigness of pigs and the chickenness of chickens. And you mentioned um, listeria there. So I'm actually doing a raw milk diet at the moment. I've just decided to try it for 30 days where basically I just consume nothing but raw milk. And I've read a couple of books that were written by medical doctors like um, Dr. Porter back in the twenties. And he was curing all these people with just giving them raw milk. And people have said to me, oh, but aren't you, aren't you scared about getting listeria and dying? And I kind of think, um, well, not from raw milk because I think cows that produce or farmers that are producing raw milk specifically for human consumption are sort of reared in a much different fashion than they are from commercial production right so like would you say that it's actually the listeria that's making people sick in in raw milk and we have to pasteurize it or do you think it's more so the way that the cows are treated and the things that they're fed and then we get all this muck and poison in the in the milk and if you don't uh, pasteurize it, then you're going to get sick. Like, I'm really interested to hear on your perspective there around that. Well, you know, what's interesting is that the people, the people who are getting these kinds of milk-borne diseases are getting it not from raw milk, but from, from government-approved milk, from uh, pasteurized milk. Um, and, and so, obviously, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're putting your faith in pasteurization, um, that's a pretty flimsy, it's a pretty flimsy place to put your faith in. So yes, you are exactly right. There are two, there are two kinds of milk. Um, there, there is milk that is, is handled and managed to be consumed in its raw state. And then there's milk that's handled and managed to be, um, you know, to be cooked to death, uh, you know, before consumption. And, and the, the kind of farmer, the kind of protocol, the kind of diet, the kind of cow, I mean, you could go the, the whole program uh, for the two different kinds of milk could not be more stark. And so those of us who, who like you, I mean, you look like you're, um, I, I thought Australia, you almost couldn't get raw milk. I mean, raw milk's hard to get. I mean, do you, you, have, you have a cow there in your office or... You, you, Look, I, um, I've sort of befriended a guy at a local market who um, he is a farmer and I think he's got about 60 head of cattle and um, produces raw milk. And it's not for human, not for human consumption, right? But right, um, right, right. Mm -hmm. I've been drinking it yeah. for years and I've never had an issue with it. And it's actually right. illegal here. You're not allowed to drink it in right. Australia. Wow, really? Huh. Yeah. Okay, well, I hope they, I don't have, I hope they don't have an internment camp set up for you as a result of, um, of milk making this confession on the podcast. Look, but, the way uh, things are going, it wouldn't surprise me, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look what's just happened in Canada. But anyway, yeah. um, anyway, you're exactly right that there, there is a, a handling management protocol, complete difference bet between, um, between the way milk 
is handled for human consumption to be drunk raw versus um, the kind of oh uh, the kind of mismanagement you can get by with. Uh, we could even say the filth that you can get by with, you know, on the, on the pasteurized level. And so, yeah, they're, they're two completely different milk. It, it's apples and it's apples and oranges Two, I mean, they both look white, but, uh, and they both come from cows, but they're two completely different kinds of milk. And it's really interesting because the, um, the old books that I was reading written by these medical doctors who are curing all these people, not once in any of these books did I read, you need to be really careful of listeria because it's going to make you sick. Like they never, they never even mentioned this. And as you said, like when you were growing up, you never even heard of it. So it's almost, but, but we're told now, oh, listeria has always been around. It's always been there in the milk. It's always made people sick. So you better pasteurize stuff. Um, otherwise you guys are going to be um, really yeah. sick and unhealthy. And, you know, you better thank the government that we're here to look after you and tell you these things. Right. 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 Well, what happened, what happened, the thing that people don't realize is that there was a lot of milkborne uh, problems from about 18, 1870 to 1930. Uh, so this think about 1870 to 1930, at least in the, you know, in the, I don't, I don't mean this condescendingly, but in, in first world countries, um, uh, again, I'm not trying to be condescending to anybody else, but I'm just trying to speak plainly here. So we know what we're talking about. The, the, the highly developed, sophisticated Western uh, countries, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., and, and um, you know, uh, Eastern Europe, um, or, or Western Europe, um, and Great Britain. So, so what happened was we had this early industrialization. Um, you know, people were leaving the farms, going to the cities, and cities, <clears throat> cities were developing uh, faster than their, their sanitary the, the sanitary things that they needed when you start crowding that many people together. <clears throat> so, you know, um, 1900, there were still open sewers, you know, uh, most, uh, most houses still didn't have indoor plumbing yet. And, and there, there was not refrigeration, there was not uh, a widespread electrification. So there weren't refrigerators. My, my point being that, um, that when you study innovation, there's always a, a tip of innovation, which in this case was, was the factory and the ur urbanization of, of these uh, cities. But then you have this, this lagging, ragged edge of, of innovation that metabolizes the initial, you know, the initial point of the spear. And, um, and so what happened was that the two liquids that people wanted to drink, beer and milk, both require refrigeration. And without refrigeration, as these cities blossomed, um, they started putting the breweries in the middle of cities, you know, so they were close to the population, so people could drink beer. Well, making beer makes distiller's grains. Distiller's grains is a waste product of beer making. And, well, what do you do with distiller's grains? Well, a companion to beer, a similar thing, a liquid that needed refrigeration, and you wanted it close to the population, was a dairy. So, so they started, they started putting these dairies next to the breweries and feeding the cows distillers grains, which gives the cows acidosis, changes the pH in their rumen and opens them up for all of these listeria, campylobacter, salmonella, all these uh, brucellosis, all these, all these things. And, 
and as a result, these actually they these were called swill dairies because it was that it was that distiller's grain porridge. It was kind of a kind of a porridge from the from the brewers, um, uh, and and that, that's what was then fed the cow. So you had these distiller's grains, and you didn't have you didn't have refrigeration. You didn't have um, uh, you know front end loaders. You didn't have uh, water hoses to be able to clean down an area. And so the pictures, the pictures of these swill, these urban swill dairies are just, I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're horrific mm. uh, pictures. I mean, they're, they're filthy and, and nobody was looking at, at microbes. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have uh, little, you know, uh, paper strips to check for, you know, mastitis and listeria and stuff like that. And, and, and so, it, it, the point is that it was a it was a period of time 1870 to about 1920 or 30. It was a period of time in which um, in which the the, um, the the technological movement of the dairy and the beer industry come together in the in the very primitive urban sector created a problem, and so. So the doctors that you're reading after, like here in the U.S., the Mayo Clinic, very, very famous uh, health uh, place, they started in Minneapolis um, in whatever, the 1910, 1905, um, using raw milk diets. What did they do? They put cows on pasture. They said, look, let's go back to the way cows were. And they started curing all these diseases with raw milk from cows on pasture, not not milk made from from distillers grains from the brewery and so even as early as as just after 1900 um you know, people think thinking people were realizing uh maybe we shouldn't ought to be feeding these distillers grains to cows you know uh but but you know it was cheap and of course farmers are always looking for cheap feedstocks and so it was much easier to just make a blanket let's pasteurize it all uh, that was easier than having a two-tiered thing. If you do it this way, you can sell it raw. If you do it this way, you need to pasteurize it. That was much more complicated. And so it was easy just to say, pasteurize it all, be done with it. I mean, uh, a, a very similar to today, instead of, uh, instead of saying, um, you can either, you can either put emphasis on building your immune system or you can get the jab, you know, there. There are two two different ways of looking at this, but no, it's much easier to just say everybody has to get the jab. You know, uh, it, it's it's an identical it's an identical kind of one size fits all regimen, you know, for a for a multifaceted problem. And that sort of is a great segue into my next point that I wanted to ask you is that you many people would probably be surprised because you've got tons and tons of. Um, animals different types of animals on your farm how do you keep them healthy because you're not sending them off to the vet every week and you're not pumping them full of hormones and drugs and putting injections and things into them are you like how do you keep your animals healthy right right well, Isn't that what you do uh, to yeah, keep an animal yeah, you're, healthy you're, give it antibiotics yeah, every week or whatever yeah no no uh in fact we virtually don't even have a a, a vet uh, a, a category for vet i mean for vet expense in, in our bookkeeping. And yet, you know, we have, we have a thousand cows and we raise, you know, almost a thousand hogs and, and, uh, you know, 40,000 chickens and, and, you know, uh, a couple thousand turkeys. And I, yeah, I mean, it's, this is a, this is a significant thing. And mm -hmm. to, to just to not even, 
essentially to not even know the name of the vet, you know, that's pretty astounding for, <laughs> you know, for a place this size. So, so um, uh, let, let me just, let me just say that we have had in our, you know, in our 60 years here, we have had about four um, outbreaks of disease, of problems, sickness in animals. And, um, and every single time it's been our fault. We either crowded them, we, uh, we, we let them get cold and wet, like in chickens, uncomfortable. Um, uh, in one case, we, we put a bunch of calves on a bunch of brambles to try to tromp them down and, they, and turn them into pin cushions, which allowed them to get a black leg. Um, and so, uh, so every single time we have had an issue, it's always been our fault. So that brings me to kind of the foundational idea that I'll share, and that is we think that nature's, nature's default position is wellness. So if, the, if something is sick, then that's not a, that's not a natural thing. It's, a, it's an aberration. And so the question is, <clears throat> what did I do as a, as, a farm, as, as a farm manager, what did I do to allow the immune system to break down because if animals are are fed well, cared for well, um, uh, you know, if if they're if they're if they're cared for well, they'll be they'll be healthy. Now, certainly, there you know, just like people, there's always there's always one that's going to get sick. I mean, you know, there you, you have it. I mean, if anybody that's got you know fifty thousand chickens, you're going to lose a couple a day. I mean, it just you know it just happens. All right, but but I, I'm talking I'm talking about you know, uh, something that's, that's, that's economically significant. And, uh, and so, so we do everything we possibly can to provide a habitat for each animal and a diet for each animal in which their, their natural uh, needs and even their natural social desires are fulfilled. And, and, uh, and, and one of those things, one of those things is, you know, we don't, we don't confine them in, in factories. I mean, look, if you, if you and I were, um, uh, were a, a, you know, one of the, the bad guys in James Bond, you know, the going to uh, take over the world. And, and, and if you and I decided, let, let's do a conspiracy, let's, let's have a, let's, let's design a farm that encourages sickness, that encourages, you know, uh, path, pathogens and sickness. <laughs> you know, we had some diabolical, you know, um, uh, idea. All right. So, so what would we do? Well, the first thing we would do is we would only have one species. We don't, we don't want, we don't want multiple species because, you know, that, that, that can, that confuses the pathogens. So we, we want, we want one species. So the pathogens can always have a host. Um, that'll encourage proliferation of, of pathogens. And then we're going we're gonna to put them all, we're going to crowd them all together in a tight place. So pathogens don't have to work, you know, to get from animal to animal. And then we're going to make sure they don't have fresh air so they can breathe fecal particulate that will make abrasions in their respiratory membranes and, 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 and you know, ooze infection in their, in their body. And then we'll make sure they don't have uh, sunshine because sunshine, you know, that's, that's a great, you know, um, a sanitation agent. So we're not going to have sunshine. You see where I'm going with this. It, it, you head down that path. And what have I just described? I've just described 
modern industrial industrial livestock agriculture. And so if you're if you're going if if that you know we know intuitively look you know if if you're if your local uh, yeah you you teach at a school all right if your school suddenly had a huge outbreak of of flu let's say you know half the students are all you know got the flu you, you the university the school would not say okay here's what we're going to do we want all the students to come and live in the gym for a week you know we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna all get together tight in the gym we're not gonna exercise we're not gonna go outside we're all gonna we're all gonna quarantine in the gym for you know for a week until this thing passes over well y- you would say well that's foolish because then everybody's gonna get the flu no you say all right, we're cut. We're, we're gonna we're gonna shut down school for two days. Everybody just stay home, and and just sleep, relax, and 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 let's knock this thing out. And, and and yet, when it comes to animals, we we have done exactly the opposite of everything we know that we're supposed to do to fight you know uh, pathogens and disease in humans. We violated every single thing that we know, and that's the way we raise our animals. So the opposite of that makes healthy animals. How can the agricultural or modern agricultural system and like, I don't know, you call it big pharma for humans. Do you have big pharma for animals? I guess you do. How can they get it so wrong? Right? Because you're getting it right. You're a shining example of what to do. So shouldn't they look at people like you and say, hang on a second, this guy's onto something. Like why Mm. is 95% of everyone else doing it wrong? What's going on here? Uh, well, I mean, there there are numerous reasons. One is that um, that people people are more expensive than drugs, and so a farm like ours does take more people uh, because we we replace drugs, we replace um, energy, we replace. Um, um, you know, uh, capital expenses with, with people. And so this is a very people centric place. Well, what's the one thing, what's the one thing business, I'm I'm, going to, I'm going to be very broad here and not just say farmers, but what's the one thing business people tend to not want? They don't want people. People are trouble. People, people complain. People have ideas. People, you know, people can sue, right? And they can call, you know, government agents, right? And so, and so, so business in general and farming, farmers certainly um, don't want to be bothered with people. They'd rather, you know, uh, they'd rather have more tractors and, and more syringes and drugs and, uh, uh, and use more energy than, than fool with people. And so since drugs have been cheap, energy has been cheap, and concrete and metal have been cheap, uh, that, that has created an inordinate, um, an inordinate price prejudice for making these shortcuts and not actually um, uh, you know, offering the animal a habitat that allows it to, you know, to express itself and, and, and doing that with skilled people who, uh, as caretakers on site. And so, you know, when, when people say, well, what you do takes more people, 
my response is actually it doesn't. It just means that the people currently employed uh, making, you know, diesel fuel and pharmaceuticals and, uh, you know, and the veterinarians and, and all those, those people would simply have a different employment. Right. Um, you know, uh, actually working on farms. Makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. There's still the same amount of people involved. It's just that rather than them being external to your farm, they're within the farm. That's right. That's, That's right. Awesome. That's a great way to look at it. Um, yeah. And yeah, so like there are, like, could you draw parallels between, because I, I noticed when I said like big pharma for animals, they've obviously got that. So could you draw parallels between big pharma for humans and big pharma for animals? Do you think there's an agenda there to keep farmers doing the same thing that they've been doing, you know, with this modern agriculture to keep animals sick, to sell the drugs, to sell the vaccines, to, you know, keep that sort of business afloat. Do you think that might be happening? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm, um, I'm not quite that sinister. Uh, I, I really, I, I don't, I don't think the intentions are bad. I, I have a real problem assuming that somebody has, uh, has evil intentions. Yep. Um, yep. But, but, but I think, I think that both the, um, you know, a, a big agriculture and big pharma, they, I, I say that they, they are both in a fraternity of ideas. They, they both embrace and endorse uh, the same, the same idea, which first of all is a, is a me mechanistic view of life um, that is just, you know, um, interchangeable parts, you know, similar to a, to a car. And, um, and, and so that that's that's one that's one thing they agree on. Um, the other thing they agree on is a cheap food policy. And so as soon as you have a cheap food policy, I mean, there's there's nothing else as ubiquitous in in our culture that's similar to the cheap food policy. We don't have a cheap car policy. We don't have a cheap clothes policy. We don't have a cheap entertainment policy. Um, no, nobody, I mean, we, we have different priced cars and different priced clothes and different priced entertainments. That's true. But nobody, nobody thinks there's something uh, evil, sinister, or, or, or bad about the price of a, of a Mercedes Benz, you know, compared to a, a Ford Taurus. Okay. I mean, nobody thinks, but, but, it, but, it, but in food, when you dare to to put the price where it ought to be to actually cover the people that are necessary to make it good, um, then suddenly you're some sort of an elitist. Uh, you know, you're you're uncharitable. You don't care about poor people. Uh, you want half the world to starve. I mean, there's all these all these uh, charges wrapped up around it. But but we don't we don't hear that about clothes or automobiles or entertainment or books or movies or you know any of the other uh things and so so th this this universal um uh cult cult for cheap food um means that nobody is looking out for the interests the interests of the animal or the interests of nutrition or the interests of the soil, or the water, or or our our, our, our ecological umbilical. Uh, nobody's looking out for that. Uh, they're simply looking out for you know how can we grow it cheaper, faster, quicker, you know, easier. 
And so, so that kind of mindset is going to naturally put all parties involved into a, um, you know, into adulterating, compromising uh, uh, condition, you know, with regards to nature. And, um, and, and over time, that will eventually those, as we say, those chickens will come home to roost. And, um, and, and, you know, you'll have, and, and we're seeing it with, you know, with the, with the kind of um, uh, non-infectious diseases. I mean, the United States right now, you know, look, every, everybody in their country that they want to be number one, you, know, you want to have the best basketball team. You want to have the best soccer team, right? I mean, everybody's got, you know, best. Well, there, there are things that you don't want to be number one in. You don't want to be number one in chronic disease. And the U.S. right now is number one in the world in chronic disease. There is probably a reason for that because we brought McDonald's to the world. I mean, the, the, the fact that we brought when, when I went back before COVID, I used to travel a lot all over the world. And I would I would just for fun. I would always I would ask when you think of United States food culture, what, what do you think? You know, and it's always McDonald's. And, um, and so, so when you, when, when you invent that and you invent glyphosate and you invent DDT and you, you know, when you invent those things, um, it is natural that you're going to be the first culture that nature extracts its, its price tag for, uh, for abusing it. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up the whole glyphosate, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide thing. We've got this sort of fascination now with whenever we see a bug or a pest or a weed, we want to kill it and destroy it. Um, so like, obviously you don't use any of that stuff on your farm. And do you think that farmers who do have that stuff used on their farm have sicker animals and does it destroy the ecosystem? Like are there, are there serious impacts with using these things, not just on the ecosystem of your farm, but like, do you think there's flow on effects to human health as well? Oh, oh absolutely. And those, those, um, you know, those connections are being drawn every day. Uh, there is more and more, um, you know, there, there is more research daily coming out on the connection between, um, you know, between human disease and these uh, these chemicals, so so yes. Uh, not only do you run the risk of hurting your own animals, uh, but you you put that into the food system, into the food chain. And um, I mean, you know, there's a reason why now in the U.S. we have uh, an oceanic dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I mean, th those are those are are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kilograms of of crabs and uh, uh, shrimp and fish that that are not that cannot live now because this huge you know multiple square miles of the ocean are completely um, you know completely toxic. Uh, there's a reason why we had you know three-legged frogs and infertile salamanders. Uh, you know eagle eggs wouldn't hatch. Uh, until we stopped using DDT. And so, you know, th there, there is a slinky effect here. I mean, the, 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 um, the results of these toxic substances 
are not immediate. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why it's such a it's such a problem because initially they're a panacea. Oh, we just spray this and the bugs are gone. You know, I mean, it, it, it sounds too good to be true, but then 10, I mean, for DDT, it was 14 years. It was 14 years until we connected those dots and, and quit using DDT. Well, 14 years is a long time for, you know, for distribution, manufacturing, uh, advertising, marketing, sales, uh, uh, you know, applicators, uh, the, 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 the university, you know, studies and, and, and to go out, it, 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 that's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big head of inertia, you know, on, on something. And so, you know, by the time the dots start getting connected, now you have this, this, you know, uh, gigantic thing that, uh, that's not an embryo anymore. You know, it's a, it, 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 it's, it's a big thing like, like glyphosate, you know, that's a perfect example. And, uh, and so it's, it's hard to bring down. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm still almost in shock that, uh, that Bayer corporation, which bought Monsanto, the maker of, of glyphosate, um, uh, has lost every single, uh, uh trial here in the U S so far, I think there've been three, they've lost every single one. Um, and, and they, they've offered to pay, I think it's like 20 billion billion with a B billion dollars in, uh, you know, in, in payouts to people that have gotten Parkin, Parkinson's disease from glyphosate. But what's sh shocking to me is it's still on the market. Yeah. It's yeah. still there. Now, part of the agreement is they're trying to get immunity to any future prosecution and, you know, th things are still, things are still held up, but I mean, can you imagine that, that, that it's been clearly shown now multiple times, they keep losing, keep losing, keep losing, but rather than take it off the market, it's so, it's so valuable mm. uh, that, that they're, they're willing to pay out $20 billion in restitution, but keep, but keep the product. It's pretty, and, pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, it's insane. And, and humans are still just happy to go along using it and consuming it, even though those effects have been well established. So what are you doing differently on your farm so you don't have to use those things? Because a lot of farmers wouldn't believe that they'd be able to do all the things that they do without those toxic chemicals, right? Yeah. How do you well, do to, it differently? Yeah. So, so the first thing is, um, so our herbivores, herbivores would be cows and sheep. Uh, don't get any grain whatsoever. So the, the truth is that the world, the, 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 the kind of toxic chemicals that you and I are describing here primarily are used in, in annual crops, barley, wheat, oats, uh, corn, soybeans. They're used in cropping, um, especially in monocropping, you know, where you just, you just have this one crop over and over and over again. And, uh, and you know, with very, very little rotation and certainly no diversity, you know, certainly no, no, uh, no mosaic, you know, within a field. And so, so if we, if we quit feeding grain to herbivores who were never supposed to eat grain in the first place, mm. um, we, we could, we could drop, you know, as much as 30 or 40% of the entire grain production on the planet. Wow. And, and, and so, you know, that would take a, that would take a big bite out of the chemical usage in and of itself. You know, even if you didn't change anything else, 
So, mm -hmm. so that's where we are on the cows. So the omnivores, the pigs and the chickens and the turkeys, um, they do get, they do get grain and we get it from uh, local farmers here who use GMO free. No, so no genetically modified organisms. Um, and, and so, uh, so some of the systems that they're using, um, a, uh, many of them are, are using, you know, compost for fertilizer or some other type of biological, whether it's, you know, um, uh, worm extract or compost tea or, uh, you know, fish emulsion or, you know, something um, uh, that, that, um, but some sort of, of uh, biologically based uh, soil amendment. That's one thing. Second thing is that um, more and more of them are going to a, a crimping system where instead of you, instead of tillage, uh, they're actually, you know, growing a cover that then they roll down and mash and then plant into that mulch. And that mulch keeps the weeds down, it cools the soil, feeds the earthworms, keeps the soil biology alive and offers a protective blanket for the, for the crop to come up through. Um, I mean, Australia has the number one guy in the world, uh, Colin Sice, who has developed pasture cropping. Pasture cropping essentially uses animals to, uh, to temporarily weaken a, um, a, a sod uh, and give you time to plant an annual into it without destroying the sod, um, you know, with, with, without, uh, without fertilizer and without destroying the sod with herbicide. And, and so there are, there are many, many techniques now that are being used to, um, you know, to, to, keep the, to keep the soil clothed, uh, even in, even in a, um, you know, a, uh, a production phase. Now, that being said, I think it's important to realize that historically pigs and chickens were salvage operations. Um, pigs drank whey, for example, from cheese making. Uh, chickens, you know, every, every household had a couple of chickens to eat the, the, chi the, the kitchen scraps. You know, historically, the chickens and pigs were, um, you know, were salvagers. Uh, in fact, Pat Foreman, who wrote a book called, um, the book title of the book is um, uh, City, City Chicks. City Chicks, it's clever. Um, she, she, she tells in that book about a, uh, a, a town in Belgium, in Europe, and they offered people, anybody that wanted them, to have three chickens for their household if they wanted them and so two two thousand families put their hands up and said yes i'll you know i'll take three chickens so they bought six thousand chickens and distributed them through these two thousand households and in the first month it dropped the landfill garbage by a hundred tons because the chickens <laughs> were eating all that all that uh kitchen scrap material and, and so and in her calculations she calculates that if I think it's if in if two in three households uh, did that, there would not be an egg industry in the world. Wow. In, in other words, in other words, you don't even need a, there, there wouldn't be an egg industry because people would just chickens would just eat you know um, waste waste stuff. So so th then you add that to it, and and what happens is as I'm I'm talking about this, what happens is you start paring down the grain production. Okay. And you start you start chopping off that grain production to where it's now, you know, only 
say 30% of what it actually, of what it actually is right now. Well, suddenly you can do intricate rotations. You can do mosaics. You can do mm -hmm. some of these uh, more uh, biological things because, um, because you're, you're simply not having to rip and tear uh, and put monocrops in all that acreage. That's fascinating. I've never even heard of, um, did you say Pat Foreman? I've, not, I've never heard of her work. I'm gonna have to go and yeah. check it out. That's yeah. incredible. So it's almost like, you do you see a what? Because we've created a bit of a problem in this world with modern agriculture, right? So is that sort of how you see a way out of this for humanity is by getting back to basics and doing those kinds of things that we are able to do in and around our own homes? Yes, I, I do, Daniel. Um, and and I, I kind of, I kind of, um, oh, how do I say this? Look, you, in the middle of Sydney and Melbourne, you can't have a milk cow. All right. I, I get that. All right. And, and, and you, and you probably can't have a steer. You might not even have a sheep. All right. But, but, but there are, there are very, uh, very urban friendly. There are very urban friendly things that you can do from gardening to a couple of chickens, to a couple of rabbits. Um, and I know when I say rabbits in Australia, everybody, you know, has a fit, uh, <laughs> but, um, but, 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 but truly, truly a, a domestic rabbit is a wonderful high protein, quiet um, uh, uh, animal. That's extremely uh, urban friendly. I mean, it's, 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 it, it's, it it takes no more effort than a, than a hamster or a gerbil or a, a guinea pig, all right, who people have for pets. Um, and, and so I'm a big believer in edible landscaping. Uh, so, you know, it takes no more effort to grow a tree that bears fruit and nuts than it does a tree that just bears flowers and leaves. And so now, you know, I like flowers as much as anybody, but, but, but by the same token, um, you know, we can we can do a tremendous amount in small spaces. Uh, I mean, in the U.S., for example, we have 35 million acres of lawn and 36 million acres growing and housing recreational horses. So 35 and 36 is 71 million acres. That's enough to feed our, our entire country all of its food without a single farm. Wow. So, so, you know, we're not, we're not lacking in resource. Mm. Um, what we're lacking in imagination, you know, what our, our, our problem is constipation of imagination. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And we do have to get more imaginative, right. And, and getting back to basics, we've worked this out before our forefathers, our ancestors have worked all this stuff out. We've just sort of forgotten it. Um, now, now, Joe, I try and eat organic and, and biodynamic and spray free where I can. And I try to get most of my meat and produce from local markets and farmers. But how do I know who's doing the best by the animal? How do I know what the best quality meat is? Like, what do I need to be asking these farmers? Like, what are the questions that I should be putting forward to work out? who I should go with and, and what's going to be the best quality meat for me and my family. Sure. What a great question. So, uh, so the, the, you've hit the nail on the head that um, I'll just kind of build a platform here that, that essentially people in general want a different world without having to make any changes themselves. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, that, that, that's, that's the dear old convenience factor, right? Uh, I want better, but I don't want to have to make it better. You know, you, you, do, you do better for me and I'll, you know, go on my merry way. And so, uh, so the answer to your question is you have to, you have to become skilled at vetting yourself. Uh, now right. that vetting, that, that vetting doesn't mean that you actually have to visit every farm, but um, I'll give you an example. I, I, um, I, I've, I've actually done some, some teaching on how to look at a website. Uh, so, so I had a, I had a lady contact me literally yesterday and with a, with a, a, a company. And she said, um, you know, I'm thinking about buying from them. You know, what do you think? Because one way to know is to, to go to gurus, uh, gurus who are in, you know, in the movement and ask them, well, you know, where do you get your stuff? Right. And, and so there, there are any numbers of ways to vet. You can vet, you can vet by asking people that you respect, you know, where, where do you get stuff? You can, um, you can go to organizations who, you know, who say, you know, put a stamp of approval on, on the, these, um, you can go visit a farm. Um, you can, you can look at websites. So anyway, so, so I, I so I pulled this outfits website up and they're, they're, um, what they're doing is they're using numerous farmers and ranches, um, and amalgamating it and, you know, and shipping it. Uh, so they're, they're, um, they're an amalgamator from, from, you know, farms and ranches that they believe in. And so I'm, you know, they've got, I'm going down through the different things. It's all livestock. There's no vegetables or anything. And so I get to, you know, I, so I look at the cows and I, and I um, tell me about your cows, you know, the vet website. So I look at the picture and the picture's got this cow standing on dirt. Well, you would think that their whole deal was our cows are grass finished wouldn't you think that they would pick the one day in the year when the grass looked real pretty? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and yeah. so, so, you know, that was a bit of a red flag. So then I, you know, I go down to pigs and here are the pigs, you know, again, pigs are on pasture and da, da, da. Well, it, it's a moonscape. The pigs are on a dirt lot. There, there, there's no, there's no grass. Mm. And I, Whoa, that, that's, that doesn't look right. So then I go to chickens, you know, and here, here are the background picture for the chicken that, you know, the chickens are on pasture and blah, blah, blah it's a great big factory confinement house with, with a little yard. That's all dirt. And there's a couple chickens in there, but it, but it, but it's, it's a great big stationary factory house with a, with a moonscape, a moonscape yard. So I'm saying, and, and, and then I, I, I want to meet, well, okay. You work with whatever, 15, 20 farmers and ranchers. Who are they? I don't know. They don't tell me, they don't tell me who they are. So those are four red flags that just, boom, 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 you know, hit me as I was, as I was just, you know, looking through the website. So, you know, um, I, I guess my encouragement to folks is to, to, to don't just assume that because there's pretty language, um, that it's, that it's a pretty, I mean, there's a lot of clever speak out there. And so, uh, so for example, now, now you can actually Google the address and get a, a satellite Google uh, aerial image and um, when, when it comes to, to uh, livestock, uh, you should be able to see a mosaic. You should be able to see where they are, where they were, where stuff's growing. Um, you should be able to see this kind of quilt, quilt pattern. If you, if you can't, 
if you can't, then they're not being moved. They're not practicing good, you know, good pasture management and it's not, it's not being done. So um, I think that vetting is a skill just like any other skill. And the more you do it, you kind of, you kind of exercise your discernment muscles and, and you get better and better at it. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. I've never even thought of doing something like that. And it's really simple. You can do that at your own home or even yeah. need to go out to all these different farms, which I have thought of actually doing. Um, you know, And I'm trying to make as many connections as I can at the local markets and get to know who I'm getting these things from. Um, and I guess a lot of people are very disconnected from their food. They have no yes. idea about you know, how much time and effort actually goes into to getting food from the paddock to the plate. So that's yeah. Yeah, something that so, I think people need to think more about. Yeah. So yeah, you, you're right. And, 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 um, and I, I think for me, my encouragement to folks is that, that your, uh, your confidence level, what, what is your confidence worth? And, um, and, and I would just say, I mean, sure. The acid test is go visit the farm. And in general, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, if, if you've been to farmer's market and you've bought three, three times from a farmer and if the farmer hasn't invited you out to his farm or her farm, uh, by the third time you buy, uh, there's probably something wrong. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's my level of transparency. I want people, they might not come out, but I want them to know they're welcome. I, I want them to know that I'm happy for them to come unannounced walk around and and look at anything they want to and uh you know that 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 transparency is foundational to trust and uh, you know if 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 a farmer says yeah you can visit but call ahead that's a red that's another red flag why should i have to call ahead what do you have to hide um you know if it's if it's all good i should be able to come almost any time and it, it it looks good and so you know those those are those little those little those little droplets you know that you need to learn uh, how to how to spot. Well, if I ever get the chance to get over to the states, uh, I would love to come and check out your farm sometime, Joel. <laughs> we'd we'd love we'd love to have you. We have a we have a 24/7, 365 open door policy to anyone in the in the world to come at any time to see anything unannounced. That's our level of transparency. Brilliant, love that. Um, so we're wrapping up. Well, heading into the end of the podcast now, but I just wanted to ask you with any sort of final thoughts or comments or things that you wanted to say, um, any interesting projects that you're working on at the moment that people should look out for um, and where can people find your website and the work that you're doing? Sure. So our, our website is Polyface Farms, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, the farm of many faces, and if you if you Google, uh, you know, by the time you get to P-O-L-Y, it'll probably, you know, pop up and it, the website has a, a wealth of information. It has, you know, current news. It has, uh, you know, uh, our value statement, our, you know, our philosophy, um, swag, you know, uh, it, <laughs> it, it has the whole it has the whole thing. Uh, so, so that's, um, and I hope that one day I'll be able to put, you know, Australia back on the speaking, uh, engagements there and, and get over again. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the parting thought that I, I like to leave when not everybody, not every host asks this question, but you did. And so when, when a host does or a hostess, I, I like to answer it this way. And that is people, 
the you know the, the the issues that you and I have talked about seem so big that they're so big they're 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 intimidating. You know what can I do about glyphosate? What can I do about factory farming? What you know? And so I like to I like to think about imagine you're sitting down at a table, you're looking at your plate, you got your plate of food. Well, squint your eyes and look through that plate and imagine imagine what's on the other side of that plate. What was the farm like? What was the processing like? What was the distribution like? Think about the people that were involved in that chain, bringing that food to you, and, and just imagine that that kind of that landscape uh, uh, that 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 food created, and ask yourself, did is this place plate creating the society and the landscape that I want my grandchildren to inherit? You know. Is that what I see through that plate, or do I see do I see erosion, desertification, animal abuse, uh, chemicals, sickness? Is that what I see through that? And and the fact is that where we are, where we are, is a manifestation of of quadrillions of decisions that our ancestors have made up to this point, and where we will be in fifty years will be the result of the quadrillions of decisions that you and I and everybody else on the planet makes between now and 50 years. And so don't ever sell yourself short as to what a person can do. Um, every single decision you make uh, is, 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 is either healing or hurting our, our womb, our, our ecological womb. It, it is. And not to mention your own health, your own life, your own family. And so um, the, the greatest privilege and honor I feel every day is that I get to take my brains and my hands and participate in, in a great healing opportunity. I, I don't have to sit idly by. I don't have to sit in the bleachers. I can get in the game. I can play in the game and I can have a, a, an effect on the legacy of where we're going. And so don't ever sell yourself short, jump in the game. It's an exciting time to be here. And, and, and goodness knows we've got a lot of, of, of things to work on and just um, do what you can, where you can, when you can, how you can. And little by little, we'll, we'll start tipping, tipping that trajectory to a healing place. And that's a that's a wonderful, noble, righteous, sacred legacy to invest in. Thank you, Joel. Very wise words. Uh, you're an absolute inspiration, and I appreciate the work that you're doing and other farmers out there in the sort of permaculture, um, sustainable agriculture, regenerative yeah. agricultural space. I think it's incredibly important work, and we need more people like you. So keep doing what you're doing. Um, and, you know, hopefully one day I'll be able to come out and, and check out your yes. farm, as I said. And yeah, you inspire me. You inspire me to keep um, trying to do better and to yes. do better by the environment and for humanity. So thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for your interest and, and thank you for your leadership in this space. It's really wonderful. You're welcome. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.